0: Jeremiah thirty one twenty seven to forty. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of the beast. And it shall come to pass that as I've watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edges. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever.
1: When the first iPhone came out, the tagline was iPhone reinvents the phone. It was the claim to have changed everything until the iPhone 4. At which point the tagline was this changes everything again. And now, finally, the new era had begun, until the iPhone 4S, the most amazing iPhone yet. So we had reached, until the iPhone 5, the biggest thing to happen to iPhones since iPhone. And then the new era had begun, until the iPhone 6. The only thing that's changed is everything. Now, if, it, if by this point you're a bit bored of iPhone changing everything, join the club, and uh, this changes everything is wildly overused, isn't it? But occasionally, very occasionally, something comes along that is truly breathtaking. Something so radically different that it really does change everything. That is what Jeremiah has been promising. His audience were heading into exile. They had a kind of on-again, on off-again relationship with God that had spiraled into oblivion. Everything that they had hoped for in their relationship with God had fallen apart because they were stubbornly predisposed to rebel against God. They were constantly destined for judgment. But into that context, God had been promising to restore them. As we saw back in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And rather than make up those plans ourselves, we've been seeing how those plans get unpacked in the following chapters. Plans to restore his people, to bring them back from exile, to fix everything that was wrong with their relationship. And yet we've been haunted by a question, what is going to stop them careering back into exile? What is going to make this time different? Why won't this on-again, off-again relationship just end up off again, again? It's constantly been cycling through rebellion and punishment and forgiveness, uh, uh, repentance and forgiveness, and rebellion and punishment and repentance and forgiveness, round and round again. What is going to be different this time so that they don't end up getting punished and sent again into exile? And we had a kind of really weird, intentionally elusive answer last week. Um, If you've got Jeremiah 31 open uh, on the same page as today's reading, but just back in verse 22. Uh, you'll see halfway through the verse, the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. And it was intentionally elusive, it was meant to be a mystery, but it established the principle, something radical is coming. God is making something new. And that is the new thing that we're exploring this evening. Uh, The way this passage is structured is to emphasize that newness. Uh, You can see at the top right of the handouts on the inside of your sheets, a table that shows the that three of the four sections in this passage begin with that phrase, Behold, the days are coming. And each of them contains this, this phrase, no longer, no more. A new era is about to begin, God is saying. It's just around the corner. An innovation, a shake-up, a revolution. Something is coming that is truly breathtaking. Something... So radically different that it really does change everything. And even though some of us might be familiar with part of this passage, all of us tonight really need to hear these verses. Uh, they are probably the high point of the Old Testament. You can come and tell me later a different high point. That'd be nice for me to hear. But at the moment, I think these are the high point. I've had several late nights this week to try and get to grips with this and to explore it. And I am so thrilled that we get to look at these verses together tonight. If you've never understood the heart of Jesus' message, then here is a passage that will open it up to us. If you have never understood why Jesus' message is described as freeing, here is a passage to help us. If you feel in any way underwhelmed by the message of Jesus, if you've grown a little dull to it, I guess tonight there might even be some who are thinking of walking away. Well, come and be amazed be struck afresh by the wonder of what we have in Jesus and it begins in verse 27 with everything is changing a first point on the handout everything is changing so we're saying these first few verses are probably the most tricky to follow and so if at any point you get lost the big headline for now is that everything is changing up until this point jeremiah has spent decades promising exile to his audience The people have been in persistent rebellion against God. They've been destined for utter destruction, and they are to be left, God has been telling them, like a kind of barren field. But into that barren field, God is about to start sowing seeds. Verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Into this barren field, God is going to start planting beasts and humans. And this desolate field of the nation of Israel is going to be populated again. And the language in verse 28 is especially significant in the book of Jeremiah. Because back in chapter 1, Jeremiah had been promised that God would watch over his word to perform it, and specifically to perform the things in verse 28, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. But the first 29 chapters have been filled with the destructive ones, plucking up, breaking down, destroying and overthrowing. But now, verse 28 It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. The orientation of God's action is changing. Where there was overthrowing, there will now be building. Where there was destruction, now there is planting. Verse 29 is a little bit trickier. There's this proverb that's been doing the rounds in Judah, verse 29, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, children, they say, are bearing the consequences of previous generations' sin. Of course, there's a sense in which that proverb just is not true. Jude 24, there's a reference on the handout, makes it clear that the death penalty should be reserved for the guilty party, not family members. God justly treats each of us as our sin deserves. And yet the proverb had arisen because under the old covenant, God's response to his people was to some extent corporate. God addressed them corporately as a nation. There were corporate um, consequences of their sin. And they were haunted by the sins of those who'd gone before them. I've mentioned before the brilliant scholar Andrew Sheed, whose book, A Mouthful of Fire, about Jeremiah, has a very helpful line on this. He says, previously Israel were called out from among the nations and addressed en masse with promises and commands. Their general rejection of these led to national disaster. He writes, it was never the godliness of the few, but always the sinfulness of the many that determined the nation's future, her godly and ungodly, together. And you can check out 2 Kings 23 later if you want to see an example of that. But the key thing here is, however much they were haunted by the sins who have gone before them, that is no longer the case. Verse 30. Let's read verse 29 again. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Not to emphasize that people are going to die, as we'll see in a moment. God is promising a radical new forgiveness. There's more to say than this. But it is to address their proverb, the idea that you might be haunted by the sins of those who've gone before. Certainly not anymore. That is no longer going to be the case. Everything is changing. That's worth underlining, because I've spoken to people recently who have thought that their ancestors' sins hang over them. That God continues to judge them for a previous generation's sin. Of course, in this fallen world, there might be ongoing effects of sins of the past. If I burn down my flat, which I'm not going to do, don't worry, Will, it will have lasting effects. But God is not going to punish you for your ancestors' sin. However much God dealt with Israel corporately, it's not how he deals with us now, No one should be haunted by the sins of the past. If you've zoned out, here's the headline. God is doing something new. Everything is changing. But we still haven't seen what that change is. We've kind of reaffirmed that God is doing something new. We've started to hint at what it might be, but it doesn't tell us what that new thing is. It's like an iPhone advert that says everything's changing, but there's no picture of the iPhone, so you've got absolutely no clue what's new about it. Well, fortunately... That's what he comes to next. Point two on the handout. God has made a better covenant. God has made a better covenant. And explicitly, it's a new covenant, isn't it? Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. A covenant is a kind of treaty or agreement, a pledge, that determines the relationship between two parties. And throughout history, God has made pledges to his people, promises about how they will relate. For most of the Old Testament, they related to God through what's called the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law. The agreement that God made with them when they were rescued from Egypt, as we're told here. In fact, it was a covenant that was defined by that rescue from Egypt that was the great moment to which they kept looking back, like a kind of wedding day, which defines their ongoing relationship. But the problem with that old covenant is that they kept breaking it. It was, verse 32, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Earlier in this book of Jeremiah, uh, he has depicted Israel as a kind of adulterous wife, unashamedly rejecting her husband, the Lord's and moving on from lover to lover and god speaks to them again and again but their hearts the center of their will is described as stubborn and rebellious impenetrable to god's words and jeremiah 17 describes their hearts as as deceitful that their sin was engraved on their hearts with an iron pen and yet now god promises a new covenant Verse 32, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, the covenant that they broke. No, a new one, a radically new one. Imagine the next uh, iPhone designers were to produce something that genuinely did change everything, that even transformed the way that we communicate by phone, not just a change of color or a change of processor, but a change of the way that we actually relate to one another. I don't know what sort of thing it would be. Uh, What if they managed to find some sort of way of implanting it into your brain and connecting it up so that you can communicate with people without a touchscreen, without even a handset, some kind of inner change. Well, inner change is exactly what God has established in the new covenant. Verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts you see what God is doing differently here? Transformed hearts, inner change for people who were always resistant to God's word, stubborn and rebellious. Those for whom sin was engraved on their hearts with an iron pen. God breaks open their hearts. He writes on them the way he wants us to live. He will put his law within us and write it on our hearts And that's far more significant than this sort of implantable smartphone, isn't it? It doesn't just offer easy access phone calls and, I don't know, easy messaging between people. This is offering an intimate relationship with God for all of us. Look again at verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. In fact, no, let's go back to verse 33. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each of them teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The heart is so transformed that each of us gets this intimate relationship with God. There's no need for your neighbor or your family member to try and get you into God's throne room, there's no need for any intermediaries. That's so why I get really disturbed when people think of me as a kind of guru who can help them get closer to God. No one here can. The band can't take you into the presence of God. Luke is not your priest to get you into his throne room. If you are a Christian, you have an intimate relationship with God. This passage tells us the reason. Because by God's hands, by him, and his new covenant, writing his law on your hearts. Each of us get to know the Lord, from the least of us to the greatest. But how? What is, has what is changed to bring this about? Well, look at the end of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, the cause of all this change... The heart of the new covenant, if I can call it that, is a kind of radical new forgiveness. A kind of forgiveness that goes further even than verse 30. A forgiveness that doesn't just spare us the haunting of corporate sin, but one which deals with our sin completely and changes us on the inside. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There was a sort of forgiveness in the old covenant. But it had at least two problems. Firstly, it relied on the people coming back to God's. They returned to the Lord. They offered sacrifices. They changed, and God would forgive them. And secondly, it didn't actually deal with sin. And to pick up the language of the book of Hebrews, it couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It couldn't take away sins. And so it didn't change their stubborn, rebellious hearts. As soon as they were forgiven... They were back in the arms of their lovers, spurning the Lord. There was a kind of forgiveness in the old covenant, but it didn't deal with the problem of their rebellion against God. Well, in the new covenant, God establishes a radical kind of forgiveness. A forgiveness that doesn't start with us, but one that is rooted in the character of God himself. The character of God that we've been Exploring last week that we've been thinking about all evening, that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Rather than a forgiveness that starts with us coming back to God, God is establishing a forgiveness based on his own character. The God whose heart roars for his people, as we saw last week. He has established his own radical self giving forgiveness. And it is a forgiveness so powerful that it changes our hearts. And to pick up the marriage illustration, God is like the husband who's been reaching out to his adulterous wife. And so far in their marriage, his word to them has been effectively if you stop sleeping with other people, I will forgive you. If you change, I will forgive you. And that is amazingly merciful. That is amazingly kind of the Lord's. But they couldn't change. And so now he's saying something even more remarkable. I will forgive you so that you stop sleeping with other people. I will forgive you so powerfully that it will transform you. Though you don't deserve it, though you haven't done a thing to merit it. I will forgive you and I will change your heart. Can you see how radical that is? It is a forgiveness so radical that it breaks open the hardest hearts, and it turns us to him in a relationship that can never break. Here's Andrew Sheed again. He writes, this forgiveness inwardly recreates them so that their heart, the seat of their will, inclines by its new nature towards God and not away from him. Such a radical intervention creates a door to the word of God in the hearers, through which the word enters to transform them. That's where he says, The era of the new covenant is one in which God's self-giving forgiveness continually recreates corrupt hearts. Uh, It's not saying that the writing of the law on the heart makes that person sinless, but that it keeps them in permanent relationship with God. And we have spent various moments this evening thinking about where we see that radical forgiveness. In fact, some of us have spent the whole weekend thinking about that. If you've been on the cross weekend, it is in the death of Jesus. Where once God's people were defined by their rescue in Egypt, uh, from Egypt, now we are defined by the rescue he accomplished on the cross. Indeed, the night before he died, Jesus made clear that his death was establishing this new covenant. It was the night of the Passover, and there's loads of bits built into that evening that gave Jesus the opportunity to point back to the Exodus, but instead he persistently pointed to his death, and he picked up the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you, and he picked up a cup of wine and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is arriving, he's saying, and my death on the cross is the defining, the inaugurating, the beginning moment. For Jeremiah's audience, Jeremiah 31 was a promise, something that they could look forward to. But with the coming of Jesus, this new covenant has begun. And so now each of us gets to enjoy this radical forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Do you feel how radical that is for you if you're a believer here? Earlier this week I was using a search on a, a Christian music website to come up with a song that we might sing at the end of tonight and so I thought, this is about iniquity, let's find one about iniquity and it came up with the answer, no hits. It seems we can't find what you're looking for. Isn't that what happens when God searches his service for your iniquity? No hits. It seems we can't find what you're looking for. Not because you haven't done anything, Not because you deserve it, but because in the death of the Lord Jesus, he has paid for our rebellion. He's done everything that needs to be done, forgiving us completely. Which is why the last song we'll actually sing says complete atonement you have made. No wrath remains for us to face. Radical forgiveness has come. And it is a forgiveness that's changing our hearts. And sometimes people say, well, because God offers forgiveness, it doesn't matter how I live. Can you see how that completely misunderstands the whole purpose of the new covenants? Your relationship with God isn't based on how you live, sure, but but God's radical self-giving forgiveness is designed to crack open your hard heart, to transform you from the inside. Christ died to rescue you from from the consequences of your rebellion, sure, but also from that rebellious nature. And as we gaze at Jesus, as we fix our eyes on his death on the cross, well, he is transforming our hearts from the inside. Of course, we're not perfectly obedient yet. As that quote from Andrew Sheed said, it's not that the writing of the law on the heart makes a person sinless, The New Testament's really clear that we live in mortal, fleshy bodies that are at war with our our law-engraved hearts. It's clear from Galatians 5. Some of us have seen it in Romans. Our obedience is a battle, but it is a battle that God will win. As we've been saying all series, God's promises are the gifts that keep on giving. There's a partial fulfillment already as God is doing this work in us. But there will come a day when it's finished and we're free from the presence of sin altogether. We sang just before the talk, on that day, when freed from sinning, I will see your lovely face. That day when Jesus returns. And boy, don't we long for it. But even now. Our sin was engraved upon our hearts with an iron pen, but now it is God's law, his perfect will for us, which he has written onto our hearts as if with the blood of Jesus. And because God is the great actor in this drama, because he alone is the great actor in this drama, that's a promise that's never going to break. It's the last point on the handouts. It's never going to change again. I history is one of everything changing regularly again and again and again. And there's always some way in which they think they've changed the world. This changes everything again. And if we've been paying attention to the book of Jeremiah, we might be worried that that's going to happen for us. That we've been through these cycles of forgiveness and rebellion and forgiveness and rebellion. And that's just going to happen again. But not this time. God doesn't have a new, new covenant. This is the last one. These are the terms that we'll always relate to God through. And sure, because we're not perfect, we are going to need to keep coming to him for forgiveness. But it will always be through this covenant. Look at verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then... Shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever? And you see the point? Only if day and night stop working is God, uh, is Israel going to stop being a nation before me. Only if the world stops turning will God let go of his people. Uh, Verse 37 might seem a bit more likely. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. I Can the heavens above and the depths below be measured? Maybe now, two and a half thousand years later, a bit closer to that. So I looked into it for us. Uh, Marcus de Sautoy, I think that's how you pronounce his name, he's the Simoni professor for the public understanding of science at the University of Oxford. He basically took over from Richard Dawkins, it's that sort of role. And he wrote a book called What We Cannot Know. And when he reflects on what we know about space, the heavens above, he writes this, the stuff that makes up the physical universe we interact with seems to account... For only 4.9% of the total matter content of our universe. In other words, how much do we know about the heavens above? About 5%. What about the foundations of the earth below? The ocean floor, that's a bit closer to home, maybe we know a bit more about that. Turns out we get the same figure, it's 5% again. Since Jeremiah was written, we have only managed to explore 5% of the heavens above and 5% of the earth, the depths below. And in case you think it's just a matter of time, Marcus de Sautoy says that we are discovering new areas of ignorance faster than we're making breakthroughs. (laughs) Uh, Far from reaching complete knowledge, we are simply discovering more completely how much we don't know. And even if we did manage to explore all of these things, God isn't writing down a kind of terms here. If you manage this, then I'm going to let go of you. It's a picture, isn't it? He's using poetic language to do the opposite to very deliberately rule out the possibility of a termination clause, where the old covenant did have terms of closure, a way that Israel could break the contract. This new covenant has nothing of the sort. Far from the risk that we might collapse into exile again, this is a promise that nothing will undo this covenant. As verse 40 puts it, it shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. Because it all depends on God. It won't go wrong. It can't. It's never going to change again. Of course, some of us will be able to think of those who've walked away from this relationship. The longer we go on as Christians, the more likely we are to have confronted that painful reality of those who have given up on Jesus. But even those who have abandoned God have not brought this covenant crashing down. The way is still open for them to come back to God. The door is unlocked, if you like. Anyone who turns to Jesus finds him ready to forgive on these terms. So, whether you are someone who's struggled to understand the heart of Jesus' message, or who's never realized why the Christian message is described as freeing, or someone who's simply feeling a bit dull to the message of Jesus, here is a word for you. The plans that God has for you, plans for wholeness and not for evil, for a hope and a future, except it's a future that has now begun, this new and better covenant, hearts transformed through a radical new forgiveness and a promise of a day when sin will be gone forever. Isn't it truly breathtaking? Isn't it so radically different that it really does change everything? I wonder, does it thrill you? Does it free you from that horrible sense of guilt? Does it crack open your heart, make you want to obey him? Well, let me pray that we would, it would do exactly that. Our Father, we praise you for your wonderful new covenant. We praise you for bringing it about through the death of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would be those who keep our eyes fixed on him, who find the great comfort that we should know in his death and who are constantly transformed by you into his likeness. Please, Lord, we pray that you would keep writing your law on our hearts and change us ever more into the likeness of Jesus until that great day to come when you free us from sin altogether. In Jesus' name, amen.